The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. I got a phone call from a friend. I picked up and I stepped out onto the balcony and we talked for about 15 minutes and he told me about his his day and then he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm in the rooftop pool of this abandoned hospital painting over graffiti. He said something like, you know, I think it's time for you to go home. And uh, I think that was the last time I ever went back. This is where the story of Edgewater Hospital takes yet another turn. The hospital may have closed its doors in 2001, but as the building sat idle for the next 15 years, it was never completely empty. I had read about it online, the history of it, all the stories about it, the demise of the hospital itself, how it, uh, how it went abandoned, and I just thought it was interesting, so I had to check it out for myself. People say that, oh, you're like trespassing or you're getting into trouble, but I feel like I put a lot more time and passion than people who actually own the buildings and should care for them instead of knocking them down. I've never quite been to a place that seemed like it was abandoned so quickly. In early 2017, Todd told me about this abandoned hospital that was a mere block from his condo. In an email exchange between the two of us, I said, please don't ever take me by this place. It's horrifying. I even have the screenshot to prove it. Well, curiosity got the best of me, and the next thing you know, I was spending hours online looking at all of these haunting yet beautiful photos of the abandoned Edgewater Hospital taken by urban explorers. She couldn't get enough of these pictures and now wanted to go explore the building. And I said, if we're going to do this podcast, we can't go breaking into the place. So I had to live vicariously through them. I was on Instagram, Facebook, Flickr, Reddit, you name it, I was looking. Edgewater Hospital quickly became a popular destination for urban explorers. When I first walked through that door, my adrenaline was through the roof. And I kind of had to slow myself down, calm down, and prepare myself for the undertaking. It's interesting being able to delve through history kind of in this like almost alternate reality where humans just disappeared. You could talk about it, but seeing it and, you know, being part of it is is a cool experience. I remember being overwhelmed right away. The hospital itself, if you cover all the square footage on foot, you're in for a long day. It's interesting to look at all the artifacts and and imagine how many people walked through those halls before and now they're just completely empty aside from like you and a few friends. You've probably figured out by now that an urban explorer is exactly what it sounds like. There's kind of like a whole little subculture of people that explore. It's someone who enters locations that are typically closed to the general public. Think of it like an archeologist. But instead of exploring ancient ruins, they're in abandoned schools, factories, and even hospitals. You meet a lot of uh, different people in the buildings. You'll often see other photographers, just other urban explorers, and a lot of times you'll know their Instagrams or their their Facebook, or you'll know their photos from somewhere. So it's, it's pretty interesting. The buildings are often derelict. I mean, I think that's like one of the biggest reasons that I'm ever worried about getting injured is structural instability and sometimes full of toxic materials. I've learned now to wear a respirator, especially because of asbestos and just, you know, the stagnant air that's in a lot of these buildings is dangerous. Despite it being a treacherous hobby, 
most urban explorers want to document to help keep the past alive. And while for the most part it's harmless, oftentimes it involves trespassing onto private property. The sign says private property, you know, I broke that rule. A lot of other people broke that rule. And for the record, we should mention that we do not condone trespassing. We should also mention that we won't use the names of these urban explorers for the sake of anonymity. A quick Google search will turn up hundreds of their photos and videos. It's very heart-wrenching, especially the pictures of some of the departments underwater. Former Edgewater employees were shocked at what they saw. There was one photo that had like a poster board with a bunch of pictures of a dinner dance. And another thing that was hard to see was that room full of patient records all strewn about. And I felt like, boy, this is such a disservice to our patients and how disrespectful. I see these urban explorer photos of people going into the basements and things. And I think, boy, I used to walk down there. It's, it's spooky and it's, it's sad you know, to see the shape it's in especially all those horror pictures, I call them. Those pictures were so haunting that they even turned up in the news. The whole thing is sad, you know. I knew it when it was a thriving, functioning hospital. Photos and videos of urban explorers breaking into the abandoned hospital date back to 2008. Different people had different intentions with the place. They weren't there for the danger. They were there to dig through the history of a place that had been forgotten before it was torn down for good. These buildings don't last forever. There's a lot of history in them. And, you know, if you don't document it or there's not someone to document it, then it'll all be gone forever. I like doing it just to document changing Chicago because eventually, you know, a building comes down and time goes on and people forget. You don't necessarily want that to happen with historic buildings like Edgewater Medical Center. You want to be able to tell their story for years to come. I mean, a lot of it is just experiencing these places after humans have vacated. You know, I read a lot of articles about this at one point, trying to get to the bottom of it, which of course I never did. But I wanted to find out what the appeal of an abandoned building was. And a lot of the articles brought up this word Freud, which is taking gratification in the suffering of others. And for me, I think that's pretty far from the truth. I'm sure that's out there and that's what some people's appeal is of seeing a building in disrepair. But I think it's one of those things like smooth jazz or eating oysters. Like you can't explain the appeal. You just enjoy it if you enjoy it. And if you don't, you don't. In order to get into these buildings, they had to get creative. Yeah, and you know, they did have some security guards, but they weren't full time. A basement door that was unlocked and security just didn't know about it for a couple years. I know of another explorer who actually paid security to get in. He actually paid them a couple hundred bucks for a couple hours in the building. The security guy just, you know, will walk in the site from the truck and just yell, kind of like a Steven Spielberg film. It's like, hey kids, get out of here. And I'm like, art lives, you know, I yell shit like that. I got caught by one of our building developers or something at the time. He wasn't very happy with me said a couple bad words, told me I'm going to get myself hurt and, and never to come back. I didn't come back around that time and uh, I never saw him again. But as time went on, it was getting easier to get in because security wasn't really on the property as much. 
even though Edgewater remained vacant for nearly 15 years, the landscape of its campus changed over time, which made getting inside a little more challenging. They had fencing all around it, and luckily because I have a drone, I'll take my drone around, see where security is, and then that's how I can get in, you know, on whatever side that security is not. There was a scaffold along the side of the building. I climbed up the scaffold, got up to a low point on the roof, and went in through a window that I was able to kind of get open. That's how I got in. One person said they replaced the padlock on one of those doors with one of their own, and then entered and exited as they pleased until that door got welded shut. But the most common entry point was the basement. The basement was very chilling, very dark, totally dark. There was no light sources down there. Water had just wreaked havoc. The basement to connect to the two buildings was always flooded. It was about maybe like four feet of water. Even if it was arid and dry for weeks on end, it doesn't matter, it was always flooded. So they would either have to wait for that water to freeze? The first time I went, It was during the polar vortex. The basement was frozen stiff. It was flooded with a couple of feet of water, but we just walked across the ice. And it was about four inches uh, of ice and just straight to to the ground. We were walking across a frozen basement floor that was about six feet of water in a basement. As you walked farther and farther into the basement, you'd notice the ceiling actually coming down, uh, getting lower over you. It's pretty interesting when you're walking through doorways that have like two feet left at the top. And we would shine our flashlights down through the ice and you could actually see it was getting uh, deeper and deeper. And if it wasn't cold enough to be frozen. And so what you had to do is get waders, like actual waders or like really knee high boots or something to like walk in that water. I did have an accident while I was there that caught me off guard. Another photographer and I were in the basement and what we believed to be a passageway that appeared to be slightly frozen over with ice was not a few inches deep. We didn't have any waders or anything with us. We basically like put chairs down and we're trying to like leapfrog, you know, from lily pad to lily pad, so to speak, to get across. And then uh, he fell in the water. It was actually up to my mid-femur. And it was god-awful smelling. That water, as I learned, was... I think sewage is the proper term for what I fell into. The smell was absolutely atrocious. Everything about him was just smelled of sewage and shit. And that was uh, really hard to shoot with him. (laughs) And it was probably worse to be him. I can still remember the bath that I took the moment I got home after that. We made sure to open ways so that we could get back in there without having to go through that basement ever again. It was kind of like that Shawshank Redemption moment. Like, you traveled through a mile of shit to get there. And so, like, it had a feeling of, like, damn, that was great. Not in the moment, but afterwards. The basement was such a popular point of entry because it connected the entire hospital campus. But that wasn't the only way in. So Edgewater, if you look at it from the top down, it's a series of individual buildings that are all connected. And there was an alleyway that ran in the back of it, and it formed like a T-intersection. But there was a chain-link fence right adjacent to that, and you could climb on top of that chain-link fence, which would take you up against a wall, which had an overhang which you could lift yourself up onto. And once I had lifted myself up onto that overhang, 
There was another platform which held two very large electrical transformers, and I was able to scale the fence over that, squeeze in between the electrical transformers, and around the corner, which wouldn't have been visible from the street level, was a, a service door that had been propped open. So that's how I eventually got my way into the hospital. But once inside, his visit was cut short. When he made his way to the ninth floor to photograph the room filled with medical records, something happened. The alarm went off. The room had a motion sensor, and he tripped the alarm. And my initial reaction was one of panic, right? Start running, get down to the area that you got in. And in order to do that, I went into a stairwell, started running down the stairs. I've got my flashlight on. There's flowing water. And I realize as I'm running down the stairs that there's ice on these stairs. And if I slip and break a leg or break my arm or something worse, it is unlikely that I'm going to get a cell phone signal and be able to call somebody for an emergency. So I had to stop, calm myself down, walk down the stairs, holding the handrail the entire way. You got to be safe. You got to be very structurally aware of kind of what you're walking on, what you're not walking on. If you're in there alone, and if you imagine it's 2011, that cliche in movies and television where you can't get a signal was real. It definitely was real. The building itself, being that there's flowing water, that there's could be open electrical circuits, that there could be weak floors or lack of lighting in an area that you are, it does present a real danger. And there were times where I felt that I needed to be extremely careful And just when he thought he had safely made his way out? I was unable to find that service door. So I chose an outside wall and I followed the outside wall until I eventually found the service door, climbed back through those active transformers, climbed down that ledge that I had propped myself up on and ended up jumping into a snow pile. And that softened the blow on the way down. And then I got up, brushed myself off and continued to walk away. And I consciously had to tell myself, don't run, just walk, just walk. You'll just attract attention if you run. He didn't get caught, but still remembers the sound of that alarm. To describe to you how powerful it was, I had parked two or three blocks away and I could still hear the alarm going off clearly in the middle of the day in Chicago. Like that's how loud that alarm was. They had these medical records that like they just left. You know, I, I didn't do too much with them. I could I photographed them, but I think that room was uh, alarmed at one point. And so, like, you kind of wouldn't mess with that room too much. What was it about Edgewater Hospital that made it so special? It's got a cool history, which always means something. This place, not just for me, but for the whole community of explorers, I think it has a certain just the color palette and the way that the light came in and the geometry of the building inside. Something very pleasing to the eye. You know, they really they really drew me in. The scale of Edgewater was also very appealing since it is such a large complex. And I'm an architect by trade, so I was like, oh, that would be cool. I just gotten a drone. I'm like, I'd like to take some drone footage of that. And what's interesting about Edgewater, and there's a few others, but like there's not that many of great big abandoned places on the north side. The rest of Chicago, west side, south side, you get a lot of abandoned buildings. And that's just, you know, the nature of socioeconomics and neighborhoods changing. And you just don't get a lot of 
places on the north side that kind of stayed vacant for all that long. Just the colors in there were just so soft, soft blue, soft green, paintings of skies. Everything just looked like it was just wanting to calm everybody down. And that's what I think the hospitals were trying to do. They had like soft colors, soft paintings, so that if you're just going through something traumatic, so everything looks nice and pleasant. I just remember some of the corridors had like the most amazing tile, real thick subway tile, like mint green glazed. It was just gorgeous. And it was just like the stuff that like, yeah, that's what people want to renovate their house with now. Time kind of gets lost in there. Hospitals have always kind of been some of my favorite places to visit because they do tend to have more things left behind. A big part of the mystique had to do with the amount of stuff that was still there, you know. Every corner had new things to photograph and bits of history left behind and medical waste and equipment and the building was in various states of decay. Some of the rooms were labeled, items in this room are obsolete, beyond repair, little or no value. And I would go into this room full of stuff with tremendous value to me. You know, they had like a bunch of like Bunsen burners, beakers and like supplies. Like I just remember there being like a lot of uh, hospital supplies. There was also a poster over on the wall that said Edgewater Dinner Dance 1991. They had a bunch of pictures of their, uh, their dinner dance. I found a lot of blood slides. Those were very interesting. I found different types of acids that were enormously corrosive. Uh, we were going through the offices and we actually found like a doctor's office that had a lot of patient files. And there were probably 10 boxes of deceased patient files dating from 1991 through 1995. I believe going up to 1999 actually. So there was a nurse's residence building. I found so many things in there like there was this apple-shaped ashtray with these cigarette butts in there that still had like lipstick on them. Things like that are really poignant to me because they're pointless, but they're timeless. They're on birthday cards, get well soon stickers, bouquets of dead flowers. It kind of makes me think, you know, what, what made those people inclined to leave those things behind? Maybe they just had a full load already. Up on the third floor of Edgewater Hospital's intensive care building sat a 28-foot-long hyperbaric chamber. The thing is huge. Kevin Feeney once headed Edgewater's marketing department. It looked like a submarine up there. When the hospital was still open, the giant chamber treated Chicago sports stars as well as heart attack and stroke patients, and those suffering from the bends, like Larry Marks. So I was in there for just over 100 hours until I was totally asymptomatic. It wasn't a pleasant place for him. You know, the nature of a hyperbaric chamber is not pleasant to begin with. The majority of people that are in there are cancer patients or burn victims or divers. With the high amount of oxygen in the chamber, the potential for fires increased, which meant patients had to sit in some special chairs. I didn't realize at the time, and I think you have to do it to prevent fires, but uh, 
they just had like the crappiest cheap lawn chairs in there, you know, that you could, you know, like aluminum with, uh, you know, the web strapping and stuff. And I, oh my God, are those cheap looking? But actually, I've seen other hyperbaric chambers that are not a whole lot better than that. The thing was huge. It was like a plane. <laughs> I remember like six people or eight people sitting in there, like in these lawn chairs. The chairs weren't the only things that stood out to Kathy Colombo. The patients would come for their treatment and they would have to put on silk pajamas because it's pressurized if you have anything that could cause a spark or something, it could explode. The doctor would go in there and sit in there with them. So he'd be in there in the silk pajamas just talking to the patient. It was the weirdest thing. Edgewater Hospital was the first in Chicago to have a hyperbaric chamber and it was a giant reminder of its once cutting edge status. But after Edgewater closed, the hyperbaric chamber remained on the third floor of the abandoned hospital. I mean, I would never have expected that to be gone, but it was still kind of a surprise to walk into that room and see that like hulking canister completely intact. The chamber became a cult favorite among the urban explorers. The hyperbaric chamber was something that I had seen in other urban explorers photos and I was interested in seeing it. You know, I, I, I couldn't really place what else I've seen in my life like it other than like it kind of felt like a Soviet submarine it had like a phone inside of it. But it also came with its own set of unique challenges. Something like that that is designed to have doors that swing shut that could possibly lock you in. That was probably one of the most dangerous areas of the hospital to photograph. Um, you had to be very conscious about if that door was going to close on you, what are you doing to prop that door open if you're going to be in here and photographing that? By February 2019, the hyperbaric chamber was removed. I think they actually lifted that out of there, possibly, when they demoed the building. We've posted a photo of it on the episode page at ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. We expected to hear stories of all these urban explorers leaving with stuff they found, but... The number one rule is, like, we don't take anything. I kind of abide by the Sierra Club rules, take only pictures, leave only footprints. A lot of urban explorers like to leave these places the same way as they go in. It's kind of the same way as like people who go out into nature. You want to try to minimize the human impact on these things. I was very tempted to take things, uh, but I did not. There were medical specimens and documentation that I found utterly fascinating, but um, if I had gotten caught with those things on the way out, I would probably end up with something a little more than a trespassing fine. So I did not take anything with me. That's uh, especially true for a historic building like Edgewater Medical Center. You want to be able to preserve and at least capture photos of whatever's left before it's gone forever. Along with getting injured, exploring this hospital came with other risks. The danger in Edgewater was more in, like, long-term dangers that you don't really think about at the time. If and when I die in 20 years, you'll know why. Like, we knew there was probably going to be asbestos somewhere, so we had our eyes out for that. There was insulation in that hospital, which was at one point really supposed to be, like, a groundbreaking innovation, was in the form of long-fiber asbestos, which is the most dangerous asbestos we knew there was black mold because the stairwells and, and rooms were just overrun with water. I always went in there pretty protected to the best of my ability. I never went in there without the mask. 
one of the other cool areas is the helipad, which is a lot of people don't mention. The helipad on the hospital's roof was another urban explorer hotspot. The helipad is, uh, is on the other side, on the other part of the building. It was actually connected to the ICU. So going off the helipad and going through the ICU, it's a very interesting uh, part of the building. Another favorite was the pool that sat atop the nurse's residence. But the pool was definitely um, one of the areas that I would go to like each time. The photos of the pool are always my favorite just because of the way the pool looks with it being uh, a couple floors up in the air. It's kind of just an interesting room. All the colors work together perfect. It's like the muted greens, pinks, and browns, and all that stuff. It's perfect. The pool was nine stories up, and unlike the rest of the hospital, it was in an area that was completely empty. With giant floor-to-ceiling windows, it was the perfect location for photographers. The never-ending search for a buyer finally came to an end when a developer purchased the hospital campus that had been sitting idle for nearly 15 years. This meant an end to the free reign that many of the urban explorers had. But Edgewater was a, a special place in that sense. Like I kept on wanting to go back. I kind of feel like I would discover like, a different corridor I didn't find before, right? Like I'd find like another door was open. Most of the explorers went in a handful of times, but there was one person that doesn't even consider himself an urban explorer who topped that. So the number's pretty high, probably hovering around 150, realistically. I guess I had a, about a five-year story with that place, maybe more than that, a long time. My darkest moments in there were the ones where I just kind of questioned if it was worth it. Edgewater Hospital proudly served Chicago's north side for over 70 years. Even though it closed in 2001, it wasn't done treating or healing. I think especially at the time that I was going in there, you know, I, I have a history of uh, drug addiction. and My story with that hospital really coincides with my attempts to get clean and sober. And at the time when I was going in there very regularly was when I was very newly clean. And I think on an emotional level and also really on a on a mental, you know, molecular level, I think I was going through a lot of very difficult transitions. And I, th I think it would be difficult to ever describe how personal of a place that it was to me. You could say it actually helped to save at least one person long after the last patient was transferred out. When I first went in there, I was a young adolescent, you know, I was 17 years old and I don't think it's uncommon to have a lot of uncertainty and to have a lot of questions at that time in life. And right now I'm, I'm 23 and the same thing applies, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty for me about the direction that my life is going and I feel privileged to have had just something unique in my life that played a really firm role because one of my biggest fears was like never finding a sense of accomplishment. But why this space? It just spoke to me. I would see it online and I don't know, my, my mind somehow assigned it as a place of solace, you know, like a comforting, uh, happy place. And I guess it became that. The hospital consumed him to the point that it crept into his dreams. You know, I found this sketchbook the other day. I used to make these Edgewater dream diagrams because in the dreams they would be, you know, it would be very clearly the hospital, but they would kind of take the form of like ancient architecture, you know, monoliths. 
and uh, sometimes I'd be riding the train and it was like the L tracks had been reverted to run through the hospital and I'd see people I went to school with in there and just crazy shit and I'd draw these out and I'd write about it but a lot of my drawings from high school were talking about what if I never get in there that was that was a big there was a phobia of mine you know that I would never actually do it that it would get torn down before I ever got to see it he fulfilled that dream to get into those walls and once inside he didn't expect his fascination to go the direction that it did it it ended up being a, a different story than I would have written and my biggest fear is always sounding like maybe self-congratulatory or like I'm trying to soup it up and to be something really amazing when in fact it's just some kid walking around. During his 150 visits, he scoured nearly every crevice of this abandoned hospital. You know, I sometimes would peel off the wallpaper and there was stuff written underneath it, just like measurements and shit. I remember thinking, you know, how long would it take to really look at every square inch of this place? I don't think it'd be possible. And while he has thousands of photos of the place, he never really considered himself a photographer. Yet his first photographs were from Edgewater. I had a really powerful fear of the place being taken away before I really got a firm impression of it. And all my original photographs were just supposed to be this kind of document that I could look back at in case I ever forgot, you know, because I, I felt like there would be something very comforting about being able to see it. And in contrast, there was something very, very jarring to me about the idea of of the place being gone and never really knowing what it was, because even before I had gotten there, it was very important to me. He actually celebrated one of life's milestones inside those walls. He didn't walk at our graduation. An event that many of us would be excited about at the age of 18 just wasn't in his comfort zone. I was too anxious to walk at my high school graduation. So I took my graduation photos in there. He actually took his cap and gown and he went in there (laughs) because he really liked the bed and building. They still gave me the cap and gown even though I told them I wasn't going to walk on stage. We took some graduation photos up in there, which is pretty funny. While we know him for his hundreds of photos of the abandoned hospital, he's most proud of the artwork he created there. I started making these kind of sculptural pieces inside, um, which ended up being one of my one of my favorite parts about that building. You know, is when I started actually handling the items and moving them around and arranging them in a way that made them more impactful to me. I think I started seeing the building as something else. You know, when it became really an interactive space, I kind of felt more connected to it. The way the building was transforming had a direct impact on his connection to it. The hardest part about it for me was the, you know, the extent to which the place was going through change, just in one sense through the natural elements, you know, the water damage and the mold, and it it got even more difficult to even walk around in there. And that was when I kind of formed the idea, you know, I'd really like to manipulate some of these, some of this environment and kind of have a say in how it looked. One particular set of his photos shows a series of tiles laid out across the hospital floor. They almost resemble a board game, like Candyland. The tiles are evenly spaced out, symmetrical, and lead from one room to the next, as if it's almost leading you to some sort of trap. The tile thing was probably the first real installation that I did in there. The floors, you know, were were pretty clean. And when I came back years later, it actually took me a while to put my finger on what the biggest source of decay was. And it had been from people 
ripping into the ceiling to steal the copper scrap, in the process of which they knock down the ceiling tiles. So my initial idea was just to get the tiles out of the way because at that point I really wanted to replicate my image of the hospital that I had had in the past. And when I started moving around these tiles, I thought, you know, what if I were to really do something with these and the real logic behind that? I don't know if there is any, but uh, I was pretty happy with the final image. He actually drew inspiration from monks. It's a group of people that make this really gorgeous kind of geometric pattern in this sand. They make something called a mandala. It's, it's like a meditation, as I understand it. And then when they're done, they just whisk it away. The real goal of this wasn't to create something to be looked at. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's a way for them to concentrate on practice and on um, the act of making something. And I, I kind of thought of that very loosely when I was making those. He knew that everything he made in there wasn't going to last. You know, I could take the photograph and the photograph could kind of stand as the artwork. But on a very physical level, it was like anything I touched in there was not long for this world. I was very conscious of that when I was spending my time in there because I always felt kind of rushed. You know, I always felt like, you know, if I had a lifetime to go in there, I'd probably still be going in there now and coming up with new shit to do. But what was it like being in there all alone? But you know, I never really felt alone in the sense that, and this might sound campy, but it was like, it was just me in the space. And I felt like there was a, a type of interaction that I couldn't really achieve with people. You know, it was a very, I still view it as a relationship really, you know, between me and that space because I think it affected me and then I had some effect on it. So I guess that is what makes a relationship. One New Year's Eve, another idea flashed through his head. And I had this like lightning strike in my mind and just this image of all the clocks just being torn from the wall and being dragged into this single point in the middle of the room and just going zoom. And uh, I went back at like four in the morning on New Year's Day in 2017 and I took all the clocks that I could find and I took three hand railings instead of one and I jammed them up into the ceiling. I strung all the clocks on there, and then I kind of sat there and looked at it. He even had some company. The the medical records were stored in these cardboard boxes, and they threw the records out, but they didn't throw away the boxes. And there was a whole room just full of these white boxes, and I would cut faces and heads out of them, and I would take the little IV gurneys, and I'd make little imaginary friends in there to keep me company. As for the artwork he created there... I feel like it was very true expression, you know. I'm going to school now, actually, and I'm studying art in part, and there's a lot of talk about the meaning, you know, and what's your concept, and that was one place where I felt just very free to express myself. We've posted photos of his artwork on the episode page at ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. Behind a closed door at the end of a long hallway was a giant wall constructed of large blue subway tile. And on that wall, the word no was spray painted with a black glossy finish about 50 times in several different sizes. I was just walking through the floors. I had my camera. I was just kind of taking freehand pictures at the time. And I came around the corner and I I literally looked straight at the wall. I said, no, no, no. There was a wall that just said no, no, no. I was like, oh, shit, I gotta go. (laughs) I I was so scared. I turned around. I'm like, all right, I'm out. 
This wall was so misunderstood that it became legendary among urban explorers. That was one that stood out to me. I'm just like, that is awesome. I was actually in the building by myself the first time I saw that. At first glance, it kind of looks like a family of bats were hanging on the wall. Or maybe... I think a lot of people thought it was one of those like haunted mental patient replications or something. I walk back around the corner. I'm like, all right, wait, that's pretty cool. I'm going to walk back around the corner and take a picture now. I wrote that behind a doorway. And after I wrote it, I closed the doors. But I guess enough people curious enough to open them. It's interesting to find stuff like that in the uh, the abandoned buildings. It's definitely uh, unique. But the no-no-no wall was about as innocent as a comic strip. My initial idea was actually to do a whole floor in there and to reproduce Calvin and Hobbes strips on the wall. Why I would have done this, I didn't know at the time, and I don't know now. I brought my Calvin and Hobbes 10th anniversary book where Bill Watterson describes his frustrations with the strip. And I kind of had a change of heart on the spot because I thought, similarly to me, in a way, I would never compare myself to Bill Watterson. He expressed frustration that people really wanted to make a Calvin and Hobbes movie, and he said he wanted his creative control over the strip, and he didn't want other people saying what Calvin should be. And I kind of thought, you know, there's, I don't think I really have the right to reproduce Calvin and Hobbes strips in this derelict building. But there's a strip where Calvin's mom is trying to make him take a bath, and he's screaming no and his nose are in various sizes and line weight, and they're just floating up the staircase. So I wrote no over and over on the wall. As demolition took down more and more of the Edgewater Hospital campus, I knew that I had to work kind of quickly, and there was some fear in that. There's a lot of ideas that I had that were never realized in that space. The buildings were barely standing, making them less accessible. My last time going in there, I came with two buckets of white paint. The pool had like a lot of a ton of graffiti just all over the entire pool, basically. (laughs) And I wanted to whitewash the whole pool. Obviously, it would have taken like 40 buckets of paint. I didn't really do the logistics, but I brought these buckets of paint and I wanted to paint over the graffiti in the pool and just kind of let it rest and I climbed up these two pipes. That was one of the more foolhardy things I did. You know, climbing these two pipes was pretty difficult on its own. And I I just took the wire handles of the paint buckets and slid them over my forearms. And as I was about 10 feet up, I remember thinking, you know, I'm a pretty slight guy. And I looked down, not that far of a drop, but I was really questioning whether or not I was gonna make it whitewashing the pool so it could rest before it was torn down was so important to him that he carried two gallons of paint up two pipes down through the flooded basement and up nine flights of stairs in a building that was structurally unstable and i went up to that pool room and it was a cold winter night and i got out my roller and i started rolling over all the stuff and i was listening on npr to this this weird little story about this guy who had convinced the government that he was filthy rich when in fact he was terribly broke. And I remember thinking, what the fuck am I doing? (laughs) So I I used about one of the buckets of paint and then the other one I just didn't really bother. Unlike his other trips there? That was probably the only time I went in there and I didn't take any pictures. 
And, you know, I didn't do it that way on purpose, but part of the point of that was to let go. Whereas my initial idea in going in there was quite the opposite, you know, it was like I wanted to have something to hang on to after it was gone. And when I did that, it was like the point had kind of changed over time because I think I had gone through it so thoroughly and had been through so much emotion as a result of it that it represented something different to me. And uh, I think that was the last time I ever went back. I think that was the last time I ever went back. And in some way it was like, it seemed like a frivolous pursuit to a lot of people, but becoming part of the grim and tangled legacy of Edgewater Hospital was really something I always aspired to do. After having done that, you know, I felt like I could kind of, kind of get a good night's sleep. And I don't think I've had a dream about that building in a couple years. Much like everyone else, we spent New Year's Eve 2020 cooking dinner at home with a bottle of champagne. As Todd chopped up potatoes in the kitchen, my phone rang, and it was a familiar voice on the other end. It's interesting how that place has kind of linked people from all over who might have otherwise never never known one another. He said that he was in the neighborhood and making yet another trek around what's left of the old Edgewater Hospital campus. I'm glad for the neighborhood. <laughs> you know, I think in, in one way, it's like, it's it's hard for me to watch. It's, it's weird. I walk past there and I see people kind of stargazing at the building. And I think, I wonder what they'd think about me if they knew my story in there. But then I keep on walking, you know, because I guess they have their own little impression of it. And then he said something that we'll never forget. I'm really grateful you guys uh, reached out to me. It's nice to be able to talk about it because the story has changed over time and I feel more, I feel okay with it. He thanked us, but the truth is we're grateful to share his story. Well, that's that's one of the beautiful things about life is that it kind of has its own little way of doing things. I get to go about my day and eat my eat my oatmeal for breakfast and go to class and bike home and look at the look at the world go by and it's just it's it's one more thing in a big landscape of other things whereas for a long time it was kind of overpowering i'm happy it's just become another part of my life his self-awareness and ability to overcome his own personal demons was eye-opening and really inspiring feel like it was what it was supposed to be whereas for a long time it was a there were a lot of questions and a lot of apprehension and uncertainty around it and now it's like it's just another chapter in my little life for the first time in over 15 years the old hospital campus was buzzing with activity In early 2015, the hospital's giant parking garage was leveled as plans for single-family homes moved forward. Before long, demolition moved east. As the walls slowly came crumbling down into piles of dust and debris, a new beginning for Edgewater Hospital was in the works. Along with a couple dozen houses, 155 apartments would soon take over that space. A new day was in store for the buildings and for the neighborhood as well. 
In June of 2015, thousands took to the streets in downtown Chicago to celebrate the Blackhawks' Stanley Cup victory. That day, some unexpected news from Canada came into the U.S. Attorney's Office. It had nothing to do with hockey, but rather, Peter Rogan. Word came down that Peter Rogan dropped his extradition fight and was returning home. The man who owed tens of millions of dollars in civil judgments and spent nearly nine years in Canada had enough. There was no notice, no warning, nothing. Just news that Peter had finally surrendered. His lawyer said it was time. Next time on If the Walls Could Talk. Peter Rogan has created an intangible tangled web. It took many, many years to untangle. Rogan conspired with all of the people who were criminally charged and convicted and that he was a central participant, if not the central participant in the whole fraud scheme. When you read what happened, it's just mind-boggling. You took all of us honest, hard-working employees down with you. Mr. Rogan does not dispute that the hospital had illegal financial arrangements with three different doctors. I saw a picture of him on the cover of the Trib in an orange jumpsuit. The defendant owes the United States and the taxpayers $90 million. I'd ask the court not to be vindictive. All these years later, justice has come. He screams for maximum punishment. The price that he paid was so small given what he wrought. Would I have liked to see a stiffer sentence? Of course. But... It didn't happen. Holy mother of God. I mean, he fundamentally got away with what he did. We are beyond grateful to the urban explorers who shared their stories and photos. Some have books, podcasts, and even sell some of their photos. We've linked to them in the show notes and on the episode page of IfTheWallsCouldTalkPodcast.com. So in this week's second opinion on Patreon, we'll talk more about our interviews with the urban explorers including one who was convinced that we were the police. Imagine you're going on a date with someone. He tells you to meet him at an address. You show up and see that it's an abandoned hospital. We'll share that story and how the date went. Support us on Patreon and unlock bonus content for just $10 a month. Go to patreon.com slash if the walls could talk podcast. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. Cutting it close by DJ Freedom. Outside Visitors by Sarah the Illustrumentalist. Devious Little Smile by Godmode. Loose and Haze by Ambulance. Tangled by Emmett Fenn. Night Snow by Asher Falero. Feels by Patrick Patricios. The Six Realms by I Think I Can Help You. Suspended in a Dream by Dimitri Belichenko and Lynn Publishing. Is used under license through NeoSounds. This episode was written by Stephanie Young. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.